0: My oldest daughter loves writing. um, And so a common theme around the dinner table or as we're driving in the car uh, tends to be talking about the mechanics of of stories, the various building blocks that make up a plot and the structure. And so one term that that will often come up or tends to come up in those kind of conversations is the word trope. Uh, which basically can mean just a common or maybe sometimes an overused theme or device. Um, so this could be a little bit like a cliche, uh, but tropes are not always a bad thing. I think it's because sometimes some of these themes are so common because, uh, because we love them so much. Um, so that could be like the rags to riches trope, or, or maybe the, the race against the clock trope, which I'm sure we can think of some different you know, action thriller movies, um, maybe the twist ending trope. Now, certainly uh, one of the most um, beloved and, and common uh, tropes in literature and film and so on in stories and, and legends is the, the king incognito trope. And so what that, what that means is a, a seemingly uh, unimportant person kind of shows up, but he later turns out to be someone very important, perhaps even royalty, but he was disguised uh, so he could move about maybe the city unnoticed. So we could think of, you know, Strider in The Lord of the Rings, who, who turns out to be uh, the King Aragorn. Uh, Princess Jasmine does this in Aladdin. Uh, Audrey Hepburn uh, famously goes incognito uh, in, the, in the movie Roman Holiday. And of course, then there's Mark Twain's story, The Prince and the Pauper. Uh, Now, this happens in real life, too, and it has happened throughout history. There's even a story where the Prince of Wales, and this would have been uh, the son of Queen Victoria, he came to this hotel in in Dorset, England, only to find it full. A little bit of a Christmas uh, uh, illusion there. But he didn't reveal his identity to them, and so in the end, the hotel staff found him a couch to sleep on. But surely the greatest uh, King Incognito story has to be what we're celebrating this time of year the Christmas story. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, is born as a baby in the most humble circumstances. And there's only a handful of people who are given kind of the secret knowledge that he's a special child, that he's more, there's more to him than meets the eye. But to most everyone else, he just seems like the commonplace infant son of a couple of of Jewish peasants. So this December, we're going to be going through just a short series, a three-week series on the birth of Christ uh, as it's found in Luke chapter 2. And so this morning, we kick things off in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So if you want to turn your Bibles... Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, that's found in page 857 of the Blue Pew Bibles. I will begin reading here in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And what I want us to kind of walk through this morning as we kind of take this this short little narrative, um, what I want us to see kind of as as the main thrust, the main idea uh, that, that we're to take away today, it would be simply this. It would be marvel at the Lord of Lords and son of David laid in a manger. What we should do as we, as we hear this story, as we explore um, what, what Luke has to say to us, we should marvel. We should marvel that the Lord of Lords and the one who is the son of David is laid in a manger, in a, in a feeding, feeding trough for animals. So, first of all, let's, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of break that, that sentence down sort of section by section, but first, let's just kind of set the scene. What is happening in the beginning? Of Luke's gospel. First of all, Luke, um, he is an associate of the Apostle Paul. He traveled with him on many of his missionary journeys. He's a physician, uh, and as we learn in the opening verses of uh, Luke chapter 1, he he interviewed eyewitnesses and com- compiled a detailed account uh, of, of the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He went on to also write a companion volume uh, about the, kind of the history of the early church we'd know as the book of Acts. So, but for now, in, the, in Luke chapter 1, there is a lot going on, and we won't even try to summarize all of it. But, but the highlights are there's, there's a priest named Zechariah, and he's visited by an angel and told that his wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son in her old age. This son will be named John. And then after that baby, John, is born... The father, Zechariah, he prophesied that this boy, who's going to be known as John the Baptist, will prepare the way before the Lord, the Messiah who is arriving, bringing salvation. And then especially relevant to us this morning, again, what happens back in chapter one, is that the birth of Jesus that we just read about, we heard described in chapter two, it was foretold before it happened, foretold to Mary in chapter one, the angel Gabriel in verse uh, 28, chapter 1, verse 28, he came and announced to Mary, "'Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end.'" And then when Mary asked the angel how this could be possible, since she was a virgin, he then explained, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary's response is one of faith. Behold, she says, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so it's then that we arrive now at chapter 2, and we hear this account of how, uh, months later, Jesus came to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. So first of all, let's look at just those opening three verses uh, and kind of the first part uh, of uh, of that main idea. Marvel at the Lord of lords. The Lord of lords. So look again at verse 1. Again, Luke writes, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Caesar Augustus makes a decree. He's kind of flexing his authority over all the world. So Augustus uh, was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar, and he was the first Roman emperor. He brought about uh, the the Pax Romana, this era of, of relative political peace and stability. And like uh, many of the other Caesars who came after him, Augustus, uh, Caesar Augustus, allowed himself to be viewed and spoken of uh, as divine. There's one ancient ex- inscription that was found and it describes him as, divine Augustus Caesar, son of a God, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. And so it's within this context That Luke introduces the birth of Christ. So, who is truly sovereign? Who has authority over all the world? Who is is divine and brings salvation and peace on the earth? So, you know, at first glance, it kind of seems like Augustus Caesar has the advantage. You know, he speaks the word, he makes the decree, and throughout at least the known world that constitutes the Roman Empire. Everyone has to go, everyone has to do whatever it is that he tells them. And yet there's one infinitely more powerful than any Caesar, any king. The God of Israel, who, the one who made the heavens and earth and who for thousands of years has been unfolding his plan of salvation, preparing for it, making promises uh, to his people, setting the stage... All the way back in the book of Genesis, he told the first woman, Eve, that one day a child would come and crush the head of the serpent, the devil. He promised this nomadic kind of nobody named Abraham that one of his offspring would bring blessing to the entire world. And then even after his people were established and and had uh, had their, their kingdom of Israel, he spoke, he spoke to his people through the prophet Isaiah about a servant who would come one day who would be pierced and wounded for the sins of his people and who would bring them peace and healing. And in Galatians 4.4, 4, Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So now the time has come, and God is going to fulfill his promises. So Caesar may think that he does whatever he pleases, but you know, Proverbs 21.1 teaches us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And you know, for God to sovereignly work through the the decrees of pagan rulers, it's really nothing new. You know, we can, uh, you can look at the, the account in second, at the end of Second Chronicles chapter 36 where uh, another uh, king, another ruler, Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to advance God's plan, God's redemptive plan, in order to fulfill prophecy uh, that Jeremiah had given, we're told the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he issued a decree, a proclamation saying that the Hebrew exile should go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And then we we read about that happening in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so now God has his Messiah, his beloved son, to send to earth to be born as a baby, and he wants this baby born in Bethlehem. And so while Caesar may make his decree, he's unwittingly moving things exactly where God wants them. And you know, the decree that really matters is not Caesar's decree. The the decree that really matters is God's decree. Uh, The one that we read about in, in Psalm 2, this kind of royal messianic psalm, where it says, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So again, long before the birth of Christ, God says in Psalms 2 that the royal heir of King David will be called his son, and the time has come for his son to be born in Bethlehem. And so Christian brothers and sisters, do you, feel, do you feel pushed around and overwhelmed by life circumstances this morning? Maybe even by political leaders and other forces in the world. Maybe you feel a lot like, like Joseph and Mary, his pregnant wife, being forced to travel to Bethlehem all all because of just the distant and callous whim of this godless pagan Caesar. You know, these things are are very, very real. Life can feel so much out of control. Circumstances can be so stressful. uh, And, you know, Christmas time doesn't necessarily give us a, a free pass on that. So whether it's the things that we see on the news or it's financial hardship, so often it can be our own health, discouraging diagnoses, debilitating symptoms, invasive treatments, weakness, pain. I would just pray that we can see two things here this morning as we think about even these opening verses. First of all, the Lord of lords the Lord of history, the same Heavenly Father who orchestrated these events of Jesus' birth, He is above all earthly rulers, all kings and presidents and governors, and He is in control of your life today. And even though so often it feels so out of control and scary at times, He has promised He is working all things together for your good and His glory and what we're celebrating this month at christmas time we're celebrating that in love god sent his son at the proper time for our salvation for our joy for our peace and as paul argues in romans if he did not spare his only son but gave him freely for us all will he not also graciously provide what we need and sustain us through This light and momentary affliction. The sufferings of this this time, of this life, are called light and momentary by the Apostle Paul, who knew what it was to suffer. But he said that because, in comparison to the eternal glory, they are brief and passing. So, first, the Lord of Lords, He is sovereign over your life. Second, not only is your heavenly Father the Lord of lords, um, he, he's called this in Deuteronomy 10, 17, says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who took on flesh and became a weak, small, vulnerable baby, he is Lord of lords. He's called, the Lamb is called Lord of lords and King of kings in Revelation 17. In Colossians 1, Paul writes about about Jesus. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And what this means is the Lord of lords, the king who will one day finally vanquish all evil the one who made all things, through whom all things are held together, he took human form, the form of a servant. He lived as the man of sorrows. He made himself vulnerable to all the pains, the trials, the stresses, the temptations, heartbreak and loss and sickness, exhaustion and hunger, betrayal, even death itself. And he did that for you, for me. He knows, he understands, he sympathizes with each and every one of his children in our trials. And not only that, he's promised that he is with us always. So let us marvel and let us find hope and comfort in our Lord of lords and also in the son of David, moving on to point two, the son of David, Uh, and we see this in verses four and five. Let me read those again, Luke 2, four and five. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child So why is it so important that events unfold in just this particular way so that Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem? Joseph currently lives in Nazareth, but because of this decree of Caesar, he has to travel to Bethlehem to his ancestral home. So what is the significance of this? Well, it's alluded to there in verse 4, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, came from the small town of bethlehem and luke makes it uh, also very clear in chapter in chapter 1 verse 27 uh, when when the angel's talking to mary that joseph is of the house of david and then the angel also tells mary that the child to be born will sit on the throne of his father david and he will reign in a never-ending kingdom And even Zechariah, the priest, the father of John the Baptist, he prophesies in Luke 169 that God is now bringing salvation from the house of his servant David. And even this this title, the son of God, that the angel Gabriel applies to Jesus in chapter 1, it's used to refer to the son of David, the king of Israel. So in 2 Samuel 7... This is the chapter in the Old Testament where we find the Davidic covenant. So in 2 Samuel 7, which is it's a, great, it's a great little reference because it's so easy to remember, right? 2 Samuel 7. Uh, we find the Davidic covenant there. And what this is, Davidic covenant is God's promise to David that one of his sons will be established on the throne of a kingdom that lasts forever. And so God proclaims there... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So in this Davidic covenant, we learn that the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, who's going to reign over God's kingdom forever, will also be called the son of God. Now, of course, when Jesus arrives and we see everything that takes place in his life and death and resurrection, we learn that. Son of God goes, goes far beyond just a royal title or a messianic title because Jesus is the Son of God in a way that was unexpected and unforeseen. He receives worship as God's Son. He's called Emmanuel, God with us, in Matthew's Gospel. We just sang that earlier. His relationship with God the Father is unique. Their union is completely unlike any other. Both the Father and the Son are divine. Jesus says in John 10:30 I and the Father are one. And then finally, again, ab- about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, being born in the city of David, the prophet Micah had foretold that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So as God divinely orchestrates events so that Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem and the baby is born, prophecy is being fulfilled. God's purpose is being accomplished. Even in these circumstances that seem so difficult and so out of control. Jesus is the son of David. And so by God's design, by God's plan, he is born in the little town of Bethlehem. Now one detail that may often be overlooked, I feel like for myself, as I, as I studied this, it was something that I had overlooked in the past, but it's just in verse five that, that Joseph went to Bethlehem with Mary, his betrothed. Now, obviously, it's crucial uh, for it to happen this way so that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. But why did Joseph decide to take Mary along? You know, many scholars don't believe that it would have been required for Mary to come in person to be registered, that Joseph could have just gone alone. Um, so why did, why did he bring her along? Certainly, she was nearing the end of her pregnancy. So may, he may have not wanted to leave her behind to deliver this baby while he was away. But it's also more than likely that, that Mary faced gossip, slander, vilification uh, because of this pregnancy, a pregnancy that the community didn't really know, didn't really understand who, who the father might be. And so I believe Joseph brought her along so he could could care for her and protect her. He didn't want to leave her behind in Nazareth to to suffer and to face alone the the cruel comments and the the tongue wagging. You know, you remember while, while Luke's narrative doesn't say as much about Joseph, Matthew in his account tells us that when Mary was discovered to be Pregnant, even even before he heard any message from an angel, Joseph, it says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, by all accounts, Joseph was a man of of faithfulness and integrity, and even faced with with the scandal and shame and probably the, the personal pain of this confusing pregnancy. It was never in his heart to want to see Mary exposed to, to open shame or harsh treatment. And then after the angel appeared to him in a dream, telling him, take Mary as your wife. The child she carries is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph listened and he believed in faith what the angel told him. He obeyed God's word to him. And After the child was born, he gave him the name Jesus as He had been instructed. And so, brothers, men uh, of South Canyon Baptist Church, has God worked in you? Has God worked in us that same kind of faithfulness and gentleness as Joseph? You know, if your wife, if if your sister or mother, or, or a sister or mother, in the faith, in this church family? It's facing unjust treatment or conflict, or if they're under attack in some way, that could be spiritual, it could be relational, it could be emotional. Is it your instinct? Is it your first response to want to to protect them? Not just to take over or fix it, but, but to truly sympathize, to come alongside and offer your strength, your support, to stand up for them to go to bat for them or do you tend to feel intimidated by by any woman including your wife uh, who is passionate and has strong opinions or ideas would you actually rather see them put down or kept in their place you see joseph was a man who who saw mary not as not as property even though that could have been quite common and accepted in his day, not as his servant, but as another person made in the image of God. And not only that, as someone who God had given him a special obligation to care for and protect. And so he would sacrifice his reputation and his comfort. He would quietly and faithfully serve, even and he never got any attention or credit for it. I mean, let's be honest, Mary outshines Joseph in, in Luke's narrative and in all the, all the gospel narratives. She has way more lines, right? She gets more attention, she gets more of the spotlight. So ask, ask yourself this question, if that was your wife or your sister, would that bother you? <laughs> would that bruise your ego? Would it seem somehow inappropriate or wrong? See, Joseph, the adopted father of our Lord, this Israelite from the house of David, I believe he had the marks of a true shepherd of Israel, showing godly compassion and goodness and faithfulness, just like in Ezekiel 34, where God himself declares, I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel with good pasture. I myself will make them lie down, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. You know, and perhaps Joseph even passed down some of that that quiet strength and that kindness to his adopted son, Jesus, providing providing Jesus with a real-life example, model, of a faithful and godly human father. So we've seen that that in this story of Christmas, we have the Lord of Lords, we have the son of David, born in the city of Bethlehem, and finally, we see him laid in a manger, verses 6 and 7. Let me read those again. Verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. At long last, we come to this incredible history-altering moment. God takes on human flesh and is born into our dark world. As the, as the classic Christmas carol says, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity pleased as man with men to dwell Jesus our Emmanuel Now the remarkable and shocking thing which I think we've just become so accustomed to because we know the story so well is just the extremely humble and impoverished circumstances of the birth of our Lord and Savior Because this child should have been born in the finest palace and waited on by servants and given all the very best care and attention. But Luke says there in in verse 7 that it's Mary herself who wraps Jesus in swaddling cloths. It doesn't really appear that this young first-time mother has a lot of help. She delivers the baby surrounded by farm animals. Now, this may have been a stable. Tradition says that it was a cave that was used to house animals. And actually, another real possibility is that, that they were staying in the very poor home of a relative or friend because it was really common in those ancient times for animals to be kept under the same roof as people. And so it was just so overcrowded that that Mary had nowhere to place her baby but in the animal's feeding trough. You see that the word inn in verse 7 there that says there was no place for them in the inn, that same word is used later actually in Luke 22.11 to refer to a guest room, uh, the upper room where Jesus shares the last supper with his disciples. So perhaps there was no room for Mary and Joseph in that upper guest room, so they were downstairs and they were sharing the space with the animals as one commentator notes and this is a great summary we do not know we know only that everything points to poverty obscurity and even rejection now if you're here today and and you're not a person of faith maybe you're just curious to learn more about this jesus whose birth we celebrate at christmas first of all i'm just so glad you're here you are welcome And I hope that you notice this morning, as we look at God's word, as we talk about these things, I hope you notice how different this newborn king is from any other. Mark 10.45 says that this Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The prophet Isaiah spoke of him coming as a servant and saying in in Isaiah 53.2, For he grew up before the Lord like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 2, which we recently studied together, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, the fact is, Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that his people were looking for. They longed for a Messiah to rescue them from Roman oppression. They wanted the reign of an earthly kingdom that would restore Israel to to earthly glory and wealth and power. Even his own disciples were looking for that. And Jesus came along, born in poverty, with questionable parentage. He was rejected by the Jewish establishment because he didn't measure up to their ideas of what the Messiah should be. But God knew our deepest need was for a suffering Savior who would save us from our sins. And so... In his great mercy, he sent Jesus 2,000 years ago, born as a light shining into our darkened world, bringing hope to sinners like me and you. And he accomplished that. He brought that hope, that salvation, by dying on a cross and paying the penalty for our sins. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, demonstrating his victory over our greatest enemies, our true enemies, death and sin and Satan. And he will return to finally and fully save his people and to judge the wicked. He will establish his heavenly kingdom on a new earth where there will be perfect justice and righteousness. No more death, no more pain. And so now, whoever would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ can be forgiven and restored to fellowship with God. So, if you've never heard that gospel message before, or maybe you've just never fully embraced it and put your trust in Jesus Christ, I would urge you to do that even even now, even this morning. And then come and talk to me afterwards, or to Pastor Tanner, or one of our elders we would just love to, to meet you and to get to, to talk with you a little more about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And South Canyon Baptist Church, brothers and sisters, as I said at the, at the start of this sermon, this month of December, as the Christmas season is upon us, let us marvel The Lord of lords, the son of David, laid in a manger. Do you see the the juxtaposition, the contrast there? That last part, we're used to it. It sounds all like a a Christmas carol, all neatly and tidily wrapped up. But those, those words don't belong together, right? The Lord of lords, the son of David, the royal king, laid in a manger. Let us marvel at him. Let us speak of him. Let us celebrate Him, let us rejoice in our Savior's birth. As another one of my favorite Christmas carols says, Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life, he brings us gladness. Our Redeemer, Shepherd, Friend. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall. This, the everlasting wonder. Christ was born, the Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of year. We thank you for this this story of your son in his first coming. And just what an incredible reality, what an incredible reminder uh, for us it is of your mercy, your compassion, your faithfulness to keep your promises, your kindness. And God, we pray that we would take these things and just like Mary, that we would hold them in our hearts and ponder them and think about them and that our Christmas time would not get distracted and caught up with all of the other things, but that we would celebrate Jesus and that we would speak and share uh, with others as you give us uh, opportunities and open doors we thank you we praise you and all these things we pray in the name of your son Jesus Christ amen